Right now we're talking with award-winning writer and producer Ron Friedman about his six decades in the business, over 700 hours of television. And when you look over his resume just on IMDb alone, which doesn't tell the whole story, that's an easy thing to believe that there's more than 700 hours out there. Ron, I appreciate your time today. Well, I just have to say that those of you who watched the 700 hours, it explains why you didn't get into med school. (laughs) Speaking of getting into school, I I saw that you originally got your degree in architecture from Carnegie Mellon. It seems like a 180 to then go into writing. How did that transition occur? Well, I've always believed that creativity, the arts and uh, invention, they all come from the same source. They, They all... They all partake of the same Kool-Aid. And uh, so there is a a kind of unanimity of the creative process that transcends the specifics of it. So I was very fortunate at Carnegie Tech, then Carnegie Tech. And by the way, their football cheer really brought fear into the hearts of opponents, (laughs) which was cosine, secant, tangent, sine, 3.14159, water-cooled slipstick, cuba fee. C-I-C-I-C-I-T. Very nice. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> and they it, had, was, I was fortunate to get the scholarships I got. And uh, it, was, it was and is a wonderful school. And at that time, the so-called Carnegie Plan insisted on the following, that you take some subjects that were not in your major so that you would have access to larger worlds and be inspired by other activities. Hmm. And I used that as an opportunity to hang around the drama department and the painting and design department. And I learned to become a scene designer and later became a professional. I learned about acting. I learned about musical comedy. I wrote an original uh, musical every year for the five years I was there. Wow. And also appeared in it. And I did some summer stock as a designer, actor, singer, dancer, so that uh, when I made the transition to my first love, which was show business, theater, motion pictures, radio, television, whatever, except for puppet shows, which always seemed to me a waste of finger time. (laughs) But, you know, I, I was able to make the transition because I had had the training and I rubbed my mind against some great minds in different disciplines which is why I recommend the collegiate experience because it provides time, which is the only essential commodity of which there's no more of than you're allotted. And it uses that time to help you mature, check your instincts against the real world exponents of what those instincts may use, may be used for successfully Hmm. and find a way into other worlds of experience that you can then duplicate in other forms. So I'm very fortunate that I had that experience. I'm very fortunate that I had the insight 
Although whatever it was that was driving me wasn't insight. It was just, I like this. I got to try this. And here's one of the things I want to say to anybody who is uh, in the age group younger than mine, which is just about everybody. (laughs) If your gut tells you that something is worth pursuing, do it now. Don't wait. The reason is you do not want to look back on your life and say, I would have, I should have, I could have, but I didn't. Because if you didn't, you will regret. And you'll regret what you might have accomplished, what you might have done, what you might have seen, whom you might have met. Go for it. That is the one advice I have always given my students because I've enjoyed teaching screenwriting, writing for animation, writing the hour drama for television, the half hour drama, the motion picture, all of that. I've always told my students, go for it. Go for it. So anyway, that that is one of the things I have to say. And I realize I've been drifting all over the place. So I will now force myself to get into some more specific groove. No, which that, is, what, what would you like to talk about? No, that's fine. That That's great advice. And the fact that you're, you're teaching all these things and you've got all that experience with animation stuff, obviously with the Marvel Action Hour, going back to G.I. Joe and Transformers, you've got the, the one-hour thing. I, I, one of the things I was curious about as I looked over your resume was uh, when, when you're... Uh, well, let, let's, let's start with this. I'm going to start kind of in the middle-ish to early part of your career because I'm a huge fan of Carol Channing and I did not know Carol Channing's Mad English Tea Party existed which I'm now upset with myself I got to go back and find that when you're writing for a scripted TV show like a Bewitched or like an Andy Griffith show versus a TV special what is the difference there for a layman like me Well what it is is the specials were devoted to the personalities of particular artists whether in musical comedy, which was rare, to singers, mostly singers, that was not rare. Perry Como, Andy Williams, a lot of names that have gathered dust. They always had specials, which were highly successful because they featured holiday music. They were regulars at Christmas and uh, sometimes Thanksgiving and other holidays. But they were popular. And also actors who had made their success on uh, various half-hour or hour shows. Dick Van Dyke is one example. Mm-hmm. Two specials for him. Uh, the thing is, in specials, you would try to create particular activities, sketches, or various performances that would uh, that would use the greater skills of these characters that they often did not have opportunities to. Uh, to to project when they were guests on variety shows or guest actors on various series. So, for example, there were several well-known action stars who were great musicians. Hmm. And uh, one of the stars of Mission Impossible, whose name has escaped me for the moment, was a terrific uh, clarinet player. And when uh, he would be on a special... A Danny Case for special, he, he would play the clarinet, which surprised a lot of the audience. Huh. And many, many actors were good singers, and some were dancers. Buddy Epson, who was uh, made his hit re- his appearances on the Beverly Hillbillies, and then later did a, a, a TV detective at an age when most people 
were having to have pablum and pills delivered by a nurse, <laughs> Barnaby Jones, the oldest living private eye, uh, he was originally a dancer. So every time he was on the Danny Kaye show or any other special, any other special or variety or uh, variety show I was writing, they always got out the black and white tap shoes and he would dance. Huh. Surprised a number of people. So writing those things, you had to become aware of what the other qualities, performance talents were of these people and find ways to frame them. So it wouldn't just be, and then I sang, which they often were a medley of hits. But then there would be discussion, talk with those other guests. And in the early days of television, those talk interludes were done on stools in front of the camera. Just sitting on stools, interviewing people. Uh, one of the early television talk show hosts, whose name escapes me, his first name was Dave. I mean, he had just two stools and would talk to people who were famous. That was it. Hmm. So it was called Here I Am, Love Me If You Can, or at least watch me and don't change the dial before the Alka-Seltzer commercial comes <laughs> on. Or the toilet paper commercial, which didn't exist in those days. Because there was a big denial of human processes, including elimination. Ah. <laughs> also, by the way, in those days, a married couple had to have twin beds in the bedroom. Right. And it was not possible for them to occupy any one of those twin beds. And if one was in that bed and the other joined her, he had to have one foot on the floor. So they obviously didn't believe there was anything acrobatic about the sex act. <laughs> <laughs> but it was another universe entirely, and we're lucky to be in the one we're in now, in part, because there's a groundswell of activity in reaction, negative reaction to the freedom that we've earned. That drives me nuts. I hate to see freedoms removed. When I was there, when they didn't exist, the ability to speak freely, wow, is that a blessing or what? Anyway, Enough. That is not political as far as I'm concerned. No. That's just about freedom. And an artist is all about freedom. And I am grateful for the freedom I've had, and which you, I intend to continue to use. You bring up a great point, too, about how much TV has changed. One of the things I was wondering about, uh, when you look over the stuff you've done, you've done some, like, you know, 30 episode runs on some shows you'll come in. I assume I'm not sure what it was like or how the business works as a guest writer. You do an episode of happy days, an episode of Barney Miller. So the writer's rooms today, when you look at the streaming platforms, usually it's a writer's room. Like there's eight writers for each episode and everything like that. How is that? Is that still the same as it was then? It just was billed differently. No, no, there are no freelance writing positions anymore. And there always used to be because the staffs were not heavily populated. Mm. There were generally two, maybe three people who were responsible for the ongoing current programming and developing the scripts and have, having them written or writing them. And when writing staffs that were there, they were generally also the ones that would uh, take the pitches for the uh, freelance shows. So I was very fortunate because I was hot in the business and cold in the business so many times, I ran out of false friends. But mostly for those 60 years, I was hot, which meant many shows wanted me to write for them. 
But I was fortunate. I didn't have to write for shows that I despised until I needed the money. And then what I did is what I always did. I said, I'm going to make this the absolute best episode of this series I can possibly do. So I, when I handed in any script, I never felt I was slumming and I never felt I was not using my, my abilities to the fullest. I gave it my best shot always. And fortunately, that seemed to pay off. But coming into a show that was running, what I did, and what this is what Freelance did, you were given a showing, a screening of that series. And you were given scripts to read. And you had to, in those brief encounters, determine what the show was about every year, who was, what was the family on the show, because family is the key to any kind of entertainment. Mm. And by the way, I'm going to do a little bit of teaching right now for those that don't know and should know. Family is how we relate to each other, whether or not we actually have a biological or actual family. Everybody understands who Big Daddy is. Everybody understands who Big Mama is. Everybody understands who the crazy uncle who moons the school bus is. <laughs> Everybody has a nutty aunt who at 75 still thinks she has the figure of a 16-year-old and dresses accordingly. <laughs> we all understand the family dynamic. And any show that's successful has one. Now on Seinfeld... The family dynamic was that those who were friends were the most unlikely of friends because they were the least caring. George yeah. didn't give a damn about Jerry, and <laughs> Jerry could have cared less about George. And Kramer? Kramer was an oddball. He was the relative that you hope is kept in the home so he doesn't show up during a holiday. Right. And of course, uh, hello, Newman. This was everybody understood that, but it was not a functional family. It was the maximum dysfunctional family, which Carol Burnett show Mama's family had tapped into years before. Yeah. Anyway, you had to determine as a writer for hire, as a guest, as an invited guest, as I always was, to figure out what the show was all about, what the family was like. Gilligan's Island has a family. Mm -hmm. A surrogate family, but everybody understands who Gilligan is. He's the screw-up kid that is taken care of and looked after by the big daddy, the captain, who was big daddy of a crew of one and became kind of a father figure to those on the island, even though those on the island often did not need a father figure. They were self-contained family, the millionaire and his wife, mm -hmm. or the movie star, whose fans were her family. And everybody else she expected to kiss her ass. And they did. <laughs> anyway, this was called, if you understand what writers do for a living, you could quickly understand what a particular show required. Some shows I fell in love with. Some shows I didn't like until I watched them. And then when I got jobs on them and they loved me and I could do as many of them as I want, I fell in love with them. I did 54 Fantasy Islands. Yeah. But Fantasy Islands was short stories. I love the short story format. And by the way, the golden age of, of movies, most of the big screen hits came from short stories, not novels. Or they came from historical documents, not novels. Or they came from old movies or foreign movies, but not books. But short stories, they provided a lot 
of Academy Award winning movies. Roman Holiday. That's one. Uh, it happened one night. That's another. I realize I'm talking about Hollywood history, which I know because I was there while it was being made. And by the way, I recommend that if you really love comic books and you really loved animation, you should have been with me when I saw them for the first time. My brother and I had the first Superman. Uh, we had the first Batman. We had the first Walt Disney comics. I didn't have the first Marvel comics because by then I was supposedly a grown-up, <laughs> and I didn't have time for comic books because I was starting a family and had to make a living. But having grown up with them as they came into being gave me a very powerful understanding of what their magic was, which is one of the things I tried to reproduce and make sure existed when I wrote G.I. Joe and Transformers. I created them literally in script form. And uh, I take great satisfaction in the durability of them and particularly of the Transformers because that was a magnum opus. And of all the many things I wrote, it's the one that has the greatest longevity mm. and the greatest and the greatest and most unlikely influence on generations. And I'll give you the following true story. When I finally decided that I would accept invitations to comic cons, particularly Transformer cons, I discovered I was a rock star to <laughs> generations. And that's why I wrote my book, by the way, I Killed Optimus Prime, so sue me. I want something to be able to sell at comic cons. And the book is all about how I created the Transformers and my semi-autobiography as a Hollywood writer of movies and television who worked with some of the biggest stars of all times and numbered them as friends. Anyway, this is not an apocryphal story. It's a true story that keeps repeating itself every time I'm at a comic convention. Two or three generations show up at my table, and somebody in one of those generations says, I was six years old, and mommy took me to see the Transformers, the movies, and you killed Optimus Prime. <laughs> Could you please sign my underwear? <laughs> of all the things, no, that's what they're having did. you sign? Underwear? Well, I signed anything they want me to <laughs> sign. They're paying for it. I sure. can't be too fussy. That's a good point. Well, I got to tell you the following that touched me and happened more than once. A female army officer, a lieutenant general, is at a Transformers convention in Burbank. She comes up to the table with a list. She said, I have to buy your book and whatever else you have. And I had pictures of me and Stan Lee. And we want you to autograph them and then take selfies. And we will not permit you to donate them. My fellow officers and I want to thank you for the inspiration you've given us. And she gave me a list of 12 officers in her group, each of whom had done two tours in Iraq and or Afghanistan. I was unbelievably touched. Hmm. And as I signed them and stood for the selfies, I asked her, what is it about the Transformers that has so appealed to you? And she said, the loyalty of the Autobots for one another, the nobility 
of the cause of the Autobots and the nobility of Optimus Prime and the chain of command, which is loose but binding. How about that? Wow. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's one of those movies too. Like I, I I'm old enough that that's you know I'm I'm an '80s kid, so I saw that in the theaters, and it was uh, a little controversial that they killed off one of the biggest you know money makers for that franchise, Optimus Prime. Was that and was that something that you originally hadn't planned to do? But the toy company's like, no, no, Hasbro needs to make money on these new toy lines. Let's out with the old and with the yep. new because it yeah, they took a scythe. To the lineup, we killed Ironhide, Prowl, Brawn, a lot of those yep. original G1s. Yep. Okay, well, I got to tell you that when I was uh, asked to write that movie, after I had rewritten the first 60 episodes of the Transformers, I said, okay, great, but I want to kill off some Transformers, Autobots and Decepticons. Why do you want to do that? I said, because Walt Disney, of all people, recognized this truth. There has to be light to have dark count. There has to be dark for the light to matter. Hmm. It's called life and death, which is at the root of every myth, every legend, every story through history. And it is the root of the life experience. I said, without that, it's all kiddie time. It's not real. And you need some reality to make fantasy work. The characters in it have to be real. Their lives have to be markedly real. Whatever that means to human beings, so the fantasy will work. I said, that's the only way I'll do it. And they said, what about killing Optimus Prime? I said, great. I said, but you're going to have to bring him back to life. I don't think so. No, you will. Why? Because we measure life by the stories we create. And the four stories we cre- first stories we created as human beings were the myths. The myths. Because we were out there and things around us that made noises and bumps in the night could eat us. A comet could take us out. An earthquake could finish us. A warring tribe. Some animal. We were toast. How do we keep going on? Well, we have to look to something. So what do we do? We create protection. How? We create creatures who are more powerful than us who can give us that protection. So do we create God? Not one. We create a bunch of them. God to help us get through the day. And we make those gods human. In other words, we can bribe them. (laughs) We can sacrifice a bullock. And this particular God is going to see that our crops come in. We can, uh, you know, bring a virgin to the party or we can uh, bring fruit before an idol. We can negotiate with these gods we create. And we also give them human failings so their stories are easy for us to relate to. Hmm. Unfaithful husbands, children that are disloyal, kids that kill each other off. I'm talking the Bible. So you cannot kill Big Daddy. You can't kill Odin. You can't kill Jupiter. You can't kill Zeus. You can't because they must be replaced by a father figure of equal stature. And you're not going to create one that's equal to Optimus Prime. Well, we still want to do it. Great. I'll give it my best shot. Hmm. So here's why I was able to make that case. 
I got G.I. Joe, which was then just a bunch of shrink wrap toys, because people at Hasbro and Sunbow did not believe that those writing animation in Hollywood were good writers. They were often right, but often wrong, which tells you that people who aren't inside and actually doing it or have access to those that they really don't know, mm-hmm. which, is, which is the standard of most things in show business and a lot of business. If you're not there, if you can't do it yourself, if you don't know what the qualities are, you really don't know. So you rely on people that you hope to, to lead you correctly. Anyway, they had a talent search, finding a real writer, that was the word real writer, who could and would write animation, the pilot for G.I. Joe. So I was number, I don't know, 60, 80, and I got the job. One of the reasons I got the job is I wanted to do it in a five-part miniseries, which turns out they wanted to do too. Why did I want to do that? And I told them, in a 22-minute pilot, and that's what they would have been, 22 minutes, by the time you introduce a tenth of the characters, you're into the second hour. Yeah. And the viewers, the kids, do not have time to connect to any of these characters who have to become characters, people, people you could connect with or you wouldn't want to buy the toy. Why would you buy a roadblock if you didn't have a sense of who he was? Why would you buy a Scarlet if you didn't have a sense? Why would you buy a Duke? And why would you buy a certain a vehicle or weapon if you didn't have a sense of how it was going to be used? So they went for it, and I wrote the five-part pilot, which was eminently successful. So successful that I wrote a second five-part pilot, also successful, and a third, which became later a movie, which was called G.I. Joe, the movie, which got me the best review I ever got for anything I ever wrote in TV Guide, which called it a miracle of a movie. Wow. (laughs) Anytime I got paid, it was a miracle of whatever. (laughs) So anyway, that's my history with Hasbro. I just want to say that I also had the opportunity to create a new line of toys more than once, and one of them was called Air Raiders. Oh, yes. It was, it was the most exciting set of drawings I'd ever seen. The designs were terrific. They had some retro, you know, 30s kind of connection to the Buck Rogers days and Flash Gordon. Yeah. But they also were very contemporary. And it was about planets in which air was scarce and was rationed. And those that controlled the planets with the air could rule others. And so it was a big canvas, which I love. Anyway, I did a five-part miniseries pilot, which everybody loved. I loved the drawings. And then they sent me the toys, the prototypes. And they were basically a little action figure made of rubber with a hose connected to a bulb. And you squeeze the bulb, and it made the little action figure look like it had a seizure. (laughs) Which, of course, every kid wants to see. Right. <laughs> rubber, rubber character going nuts. And then there were the weapons. One was a rocket launcher. Again, series of rocket tubes on a stand with a hose and a bulb. Squeeze it and the rocks <laughs> sort of farted off <laughs> and went nowhere. I was so sorry the toys weren't great. So the series was never made. But I was grateful for the gig 
as I always was with Hasbro, with whom I had a great relationship. I don't have any of my air. I had a few of the Air Raiders toys, but uh, I do still have my Air Raiders comic books. And to talk about your work on G.I. Joe and Transformers, that was the heyday of the 80s when everything had a comic book, a TV show, yes. and an action figure line. And I know well, uh, we've had Bob Budiansky on the show before, who's kind of the godfather of Transformers. He created all their the characters and kind of worked on their bio cards that you'd see on the back of the figures and, and created the names. So I'm curious, uh, obviously Sunbow Entertainment, Marvel uh, Productions owned those series and that was i i'm assuming the first time you worked with stan lee then no i actually met stan a lot earlier when i uh, would no uh, yes a lot earlier when i was doing doing a uh, an animated tv special for hearst publications and king feature syndicate which was the romance of betty boop Okay. Which was a it's, which I did as a depression musical with a great cast. It got wonderful reviews, and uh, Lee Mendelson was the producer, and uh, Bill Melendez was the animator. And Bill and I became very close friends, as I also became with Lee. And I met Stan by way of Bill Melendez and uh, Lee Mendelson, and we had lunch together. And Stan and I really hit it off. So he called me into his office and we talked about a lot of things and we became lifelong friends. But that's how I met Stan. But we were talking about Hasbro, I guess. Mm -hmm. And you were telling me about the guy who designed the original toys and produced something in the way of an auto of a biography for each. Those were useful as sales tools, but they were not useful particularly as matrices for creating characters that had human qualities okay i had to give these characters the action figures voices that developed character quickly instantly in a few exchanges everybody watching knew who they were what they were about and what was different between them and what the relationships were for example I decided that the Decepticons should be English mostly and should also be like the uh, Cobra group in G.I. Joe. And like any myth has, you have a good family and a bad family. Mm -hmm. And in the bad family, everybody is out to screw everybody else. There is no loyalty because it's everybody for himself, herself, themselves. And therefore, everybody discounts, disallows, or badmouths the other people when they're not within hearing. And when they do badmouth them directly, it's the nature of the relationship, as, for example, Destro and the Cobra Commander, or Starscream and Megatron. Yeah. Each, you know, Destro thought the Cobra Commander was a moron, and the Cobra Commander, Commander thought that Destro was a popinjay. A puffed up, egocentric guy who was always there to, to blow his own horn to the detriment of Cobra, which owed its sole allegiance to the Cobra commander, which nobody gave. Anyway, how do you show those relationships in just a few instances of an exchange of dialogue? The dialogue has to be really crisp, really clear. 
Example, the opening of the G.I. Joe five-part pilot begins with what looks like an airplane coming in to buzz the field, causing Duke to have to hit the deck as it goes over. And he yells, I don't care who that is. I'm going to kick the mustard off that dog. And then it <laughs> lands and it's Scarlet. And she immediately says something. Where's your spirit of adventure? And now we have the bantering relationship set with them. Don't we? Yeah. Okay. I had to do that for every, every bunch of the characters. Some way. And then keep that going. So the characters were clear. And the relationship between Roadblock and Scarlet. Well, Roadblock says, well, Miss Scarlet, ma'am, I will get this ready for you. And she says, oh, sir, you're quite a gentleman. So the idea that a black guy uses the deep South accent of a white person and she responds playing it back to him, that says volumes about the relationship, doesn't it? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what I did. And, and that's what that's what I've always had to do as a dramatist. I've got to make sure that when characters speak, it's for purpose and that the purpose dramatically is clear. And yet it doesn't seem like it's a textbook anything. It feels like human interaction. Very natural so, and normal. Yes, but also very specific and opening a field of recognition that kids particularly get immediately. And I would never write down to kids because when I was a kid, I hated that when anybody tried to dumb something down. Yeah. That's another thing I love about the Transformers group. They are the most intelligent and the most kind and the most well-read and sometimes the most detached loners who are really deeply good, wonderful people I've ever met as a group and immensely talented and gifted in a number of arenas. I've been surprised repeatedly by who they've become and who they remain. It's, it's astonishing. High quality. Just wonderful people. I'm curious, right. as you're writing for these characters and you know, you're know you weaving their story and their interactions and their interpersonal relationships, uh, some of these characters from both Transformers and G.I. Joe, and there were, there were crossovers with the actors and their voices. I'm curious, as a writer, since this is you know your baby, were you able to be in on the voice casting and you were saying, hey, Scatman Crothers for jazz, that's the voice I want, or hey, Peter well, Cullen, he, he nailed it. How did, how did that come about? Well, I actually recorded some voice ideas for some of the characters that I asked to be created or that were there that had no vocal identity. So for Shipwreck, I said, let's make him Jack Nicholson. <laughs> and they went for that. And, you know, I know a lot of the voice actors. And I said, did you hear about that? Yeah, we heard. And we thought that's a good idea. Others said, no, I didn't. But I came to the same conclusion that you had that this was the way to play it. So I did help. And very often I created characters that had not been created, the dreadnoughts. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know that's what they would be called, but I said, wouldn't it be great if the Beatles were bad? <laughs> and they showed up on motorbikes. Anyway, I had a great creative interaction with the, Joe Bacall and Tom Griffin of Sunbow and everybody from from uh, from Hasbro. It was really stimulating. I enjoyed it tremendously. And, and by the way, this 
I get a kick out of this. When uh, Hasbro decided to do a toy of Unicron, I got a tremendous kick out of it, particularly when it was named the Divorce Maker because it was $600. <laughs> that was a monster. <laughs> monster. Anyway, I was asked to come to an introduction of Unicron during the comic convention in San Diego at a rock club. And uh, I was there as was a, a Hasbro executive, Ben Montano, was a terrific guy. And some of the other writers who had written the, uh, the weekly, the stripping series of Transformers were good writers, Flint Dilly being one. And uh, some of the voice actors were there. And uh, the Japanese designers and engineers who had built the Unicron toy, and mm. it was the only one there, were there to unveil it. And when they were getting it set up, they broke it. Oh, no. They're behind the counter and they broke it. Uh. So Ben came up to me and he said, do something. I said, <laughs> what? He said, get on the stage and keep them busy in the hopes that we can show the Unicron toy. So I did. And I got up on the stage. The rock band played me on. And I told the story of Orson Welles. And... Uh, his his role in Unicron that was told to me by Lucille Ball, which you know. And maybe your listeners know it, maybe they don't. Should I tell it? Yeah, I mean, that's a great story. Yeah, I, I will. Uh, I mean, that's that's if my listeners aren't familiar, sit back. This is this is a great story. Go right ahead. OK, I knew Orson Welles, which was incredible because he shocked me and entertained me when I listened to his radio show, War of the Worlds. I never thought it was real for a moment, but people in New Jersey and elsewhere did, even though they couldn't find Grover's Mills on any map. <laughs> but, you know, so I was crazy about him. I also loved his uh, Mercury Theater of the Air. And, uh, you know, he, he was really it. So anyway, I did meet him. And uh, we hit it off. Uh, Johnny Carson introduced us in the halls of NBC. And uh, he was immediately interested because I was a writer. And he said he was a writer, but nobody gave him credit for that, just as nobody gave him credit for what he did do that was astonishing, but only looked at what it cost. Uh, I'll tell you, this is what Lorson said to me the last time I saw him alive was uh, while just before he did Unicron or shortly after, I'm not sure. Uh, I went to the polo lounge at the Beverly Hills Hotel for a meeting with Stan Lee. And Stan was in the patio, and I came in and sitting at the front table, which was where he sat, was Orson Welles, who then weighed maybe 800 pounds, hmm. always in the same black tailored outfit because he thought it looked slimming. And he is chilling out a couple from out of town because their dress indicated downtown Sheboygan, not Beverly Hills. <laughs> And the woman had a, a Polaroid camera and had been taking his picture. And he said, Madam, I am not a national monument. I am not Fort Knox. I am not Mount Rushmore. And I, res I respectfully ask you to give me the damn camera. And she did. And he ripped out all of the, all of the pictures, all of the, this film. And he said, leave I'll have the Mater D beat you. Oh, my gosh. And they just looked at each other, and you know, their lips quivering, and they left. And then he said, Ronnie, how are you? 
I said, I feel better now, Orson. I saw you take care of the public. I said, yes, yes, yes. He said, hangers on all. I said, how are you? He says, not well. The fault, dear Ronnie, lies not in ourselves, but in our stars, that we are but underlings who listen to owls. <laughs> I, I thought that was brilliant. A anyway, so the, the, the Japanese brilliant designers and engineers who built this Unicron broke it. And they're behind the curtain trying to put it together. And I told the Orson Welles story. And I also said that uh, Unicron was on his way here, but he was stopped at the border and put in a cage with aluminum foil with a bunch of kids because he's an alien. <laughs> Which is what was happening at the southern border at that time. Even then? Even then. Anyway, I, I placated the crowd and then I got the signal. It's time to unveil it. And then there it was. Really miraculous. It was in the transformed state, so you could see Unicron in all of his glory. But it was astonishing, and a lot of people there bought it, and several bought two or three of them at Man. 600 bucks each. Wow. And the, the deal was there had to be a pre-sale of 3,000 or more before they'd actually market it, and they got that quickly. Yeah, I know so, the Hasbro has labs. They've made a couple of those. They made the Mandalorian Razor Crest in that same style too, where if we're going to do a crowdfunding thing, and if we hit this mark, we're going to produce it. And it, this, the stuff they've been putting out has been great. Yes, I agree. Well, they're using great resource, and also uh, Disney has uh, continued to use what it took from Marvel, for example, judiciously, and they have expanded the franchise by building on it using the clues that were planted by the original creators. I mean, to create the Mandalorian based on really just a figure, yeah. a passing figure, and then to expand it so that he had a history and a, a relationship and uh, to, to pick baby Yoda. I mean, how brilliant <laughs> is that? Brilliant. I'm, I'm curious, as a writer, and you've worked on all these great shows, when there's, uh, my friends and I were talking about this the other day, you know, back when I was growing up, there's, you know, ABC, CBS, and NBC, you had your shows like Seinfeld or on Thursday night, you want to catch, you know, the Nick at Night shows yeah, and everything. So with those kind of shows, you know, we, we had stuff to watch, but I feel like the explosion of streaming, I can't keep up with everything. As a writer yourself, when you're looking at all these shows, do you have certain ones that you find very, uh, very appealing to you? Is it just a lot of noise out there right now? As a writer, someone who's been working so long on all these great shows, what do you think about the current state of television with streaming and everything like that? First, as a writer, now on strike, and I've been a, a Guild member for 61 years. I've been on so many strikes. Uh, I mean, I, I've totaled them up and it's over a year. Uh, I've been walking picket lines. Hmm all for good cause, all because management's posture, anytime new technology comes along, the posture is this. You know we can barely keep the lights on. And new technology is really expensive, and the jury's out. We don't know if we're going to make money. Right now we're losing a ton. And the thing is, if we have to pay you anything, I mean, you'll kill the golden goose before it lays the egg. Come back in three years when it's mature and we'll reconsider. And they said the same thing about 
rerunning movies on television. Nobody wants to see a movie that they've already paid to see. And it's so new. And if you charge us now, it'll kill, et cetera. So this is management's posture continuously. And in this case with streaming and the uh, absolute assault on writing Writers Guild and union strength, which says, hey, you're lucky to have the job. You're just a bunch of kids. You do this anyway. So you're lucky we're paying you. And you're lucky you can make money doing this crap. Because we're the big guys, we're big daddy, we make it all possible. We're the ones that decide what you should get and what you shouldn't. And the thing is, we want to continue to p- pocket the money. Well, the, uh, the, head of the, the head of Warner Brothers said early in the strike, we need the writers. They have a real point. We just made half a billion dollars, $50 million. We're going to make, we're going to net over a billion dollars next year. They should share in it, but they refuse to acknowledge that what writers do is valuable. Hmm. And it used to be if they could find somebody in the Philippines or China who could write in English, there would never be a working writer in the United States because we'd be too expensive. So and what do I think of the projects that have been made? Uh, those that I've looked at. And if I began to look at all of them, we'd be talking until 2025. Right. You know, it's impossible to track them all, but I've seen a lot of them. I see that the quality of the writing is mostly, to be kind, suspect. Hmm. It's not that it's always hurried, it's often that it's not professional in quality, that there are gaps, there are holes, there are characters that don't register, there are scenes that perform no function, and often they are done in a shoddy manner. You can see that the director was unfamiliar with the process. You can also see when an ex- when exposition is delivered in a two-shot, you know there's something wrong. And, and other examples of uh, let's do this quick and cheap or we don't care. The audience isn't going to know the difference between good and bad. But some of the things that are good are truly good and they would be in any format. And yet when I see the writers that are doing that, they're not being paid accordingly hmm. because they're limited to the number of jobs they can do a year. The contracts are for some of these streaming shows, which may do what, eight episodes, 10 episodes, or that whoever does them can only do that show. Well, you can't live on eight or 10 episodes. It's impossible. Yeah. It costs money to live. And the thing is, if you have to commit to eight or 10 shows that are not paying you anything near a fair wage at that time, what are you going to do? Particularly since there are no residuals or the residuals such as they exist are less than chicken feed and are based on them clearing profits before they even begin to examine participation at a ridiculously low percentage. So it is unconscionable. And I got to tell you why I'm so vehement about it. I grew up in a steel mill town. I saw union organizers beaten by mill police from Weir Steel, beaten with iron rods as they jumped off a stake truck, dressed like German stormtroopers, because the head of the mill police in Weir Steel in Wirton, West Virginia, was a fan of Hitler. His name was Tom Millsap, who later married the the ex-wife of Jerzy Kosinski, 
a Polish Jew who escaped the Holocaust staying alive by living in haystacks and running for his life called the Painted Bird. So that shows you that history often is blind and deaf and dumb. Wow. But I, I saw what was happening to Union people. I grew up seeing men with missing hands, missing legs, part of a face removed, part of a body eaten up by acid from working the soaking pits at the mill. Mm. We didn't have to move steel ingots around in bits of sulfuric acid to take the scale off them after they came out of the, the mill. I mean, I saw what the mill did for men who were damaged. There was a guy whom I loved, whose first name was Dave. He lost both legs in a mill accident. What they gave him was $600. Oh, my God. And a square of plywood with a carpet tacked to the top and two sets of roller skates on underneath, and leather gloves shaped like horses' hooves so he could push himself along the street. That's what they gave him. Ugh. So, I mean, unionization is basically called this. Pay attention. We are helping you keep the place open. We are providing and making and creating the product that's making you rich that's keeping the economy pumping, that's keeping people in housing, that's, keep, that's paying for research that makes new drugs available and paying for those drugs. That's, that's what unionization is about. Hmm. Um, anyway, I grew, I grew up with that and I'm a staunch union guy. And anybody who objects and says, well, the Teamsters, well, the Teamsters were necessary. Did they become controlled by the mob? Yeah. So did the longshoremen look at the movie called On the Waterfront. Yeah, um, yeah. But in time and with the election of politicians who felt, felt more of a sense of duty to the public than to those that financed their campaigns made the difference. And they continue to. That's where I stand. And now let's stand up, salute the flag and contribute to the fund. There you go. Um I'm trying to think of a good segue from that. Um, Anyone will do. I'm sorry I got into that. No, no, that's fine. Like I said, I, I want you to kind of run with the conversation. I just, uh, that's, uh, I mean, it's a lot. I mean, now I've got that the pictures of those poor men in my mind. That's uh, that's awful to think about. Man, I can't even imagine something like that today. Um, well, let, me, let me put this this way, and then I'll be done with it. Thanks to the Writers Guild and their magnificent pension and their magnificent medical plan. Thanks to them and also the minimum wage or the maximum wages I was able to get with residuals, I was able to take care of my wife and three kids and my ex-wife for over 30 years and my mother keeping her in her house in Pittsburgh and my in-laws putting them into for years, all the years of their lives, get my three kids well-educated. So... My my son, Harvard undergrad, Yale Law. My daughter, Wesleyan undergrad, Yale School of Management. My youngest son, Cal State Northridge School of Film, Television, and Communication. And he had a good career as a producer. I, I, with no student debt, thanks to the Writers Guild and what I was able to make. 
and with the the projects you've worked on that you know have all all these different ones you've worked on in your career I, i'm curious because we talked uh just a minute ago about you know the all these new projects that are out good writing bad writing i don't know if you've had a chance to see the marvelous mrs Maisel, one of my favorite shows recently um from again i'm a layman i think the writing was very sharp very well acted i'm curious uh because uh, we've got the actor in that show who played Lenny Bruce did a great job portraying him. Luke Kirby was the actor's name. And from if I'm not mistaken, you knew the real Lenny Bruce. Did you have a chance yeah. to see this show? And how do you think he did? Yeah, I, I did? I did watch the show. I mostly liked it. And uh, the, some of the things I thought I was there and I know what was missing. And one of the things that was missing, it may have been in court, but later, that the mob controlled every nightclub just about every hotel and just about any place where entertainment appeared. Hmm. You, you had to be in with the particular family that controlled it, or you didn't get your garbage taken away. They were in waste management. You didn't get your, uh, your, your silver and your uh, dishware washed, and you didn't get it delivered, and you didn't get your food delivered. You had to pay the, the, the regular protection fee, vigorous, whatever the hell it was, and also the clubs were places where you'd often see uh, mafia, mafia goon squads sitting at the ringside tables with hookers getting drunk and heckling the comic. It was rough. Hmm. And that's, that's where I began when I stopped being an architect, writing for stand-up comics and often doing it with them or for them so they would see it was funny and pay me. But it was a tough buck because if you didn't get laughs, the drunks would throw heavy glass ashtrays at you. Ooh. It really heckled the hell out of you. And I have a good friend who was one of the greatest television directors of all time named Howard Storm, who directed nearly every episode of Mork and Mindy and you know, many, many episodes of, of Golden Girls. You picked Laverne and Shirley. I mean, he was he is great. Good friend. Well, he began as a stand up comic. So he's working at the Copa. And while he's working there, this was a mob controlled nightclub, one of the big hot spots in New York. A guy comes in with a gun and he starts firing at a guy sitting at a table. The guy at the table runs. This other guy follows him shooting and they leave. The audience is, you know, what's left of them, they're, they're in a panic. And Howard runs and there's the manager, Jules Podell. He says, where are you going? He said, the guy was shooting. He said, we didn't shoot at you, did he? <laughs> Get back and do your act. Wow. So, yeah, that, that's the seedy underside that, that we don't get to see in Mrs. Maisel then. <laughs> no, and, and to me, you need to see that. And Lenny Bruce, I knew slightly, but he was a lovable, really bright guy, and he was funny with or without drugs or with or without profanity. And he appeared on the Steve Allen show several times and was hilarious. I mean, he was just funny, hmm. really. But the, the drug use and also the fact that he insisted on profanity, and he was right. He was right. Probably can't say some things in profanity that I always open my teaching classes with, <laughs> which is repeat after me three words you cannot say on radio or television unless it's in streaming or, you know, on the non-network stuff. And they always look at me and I said, do it with feeling. Say it again louder. And I say, was anybody here ruined by hearing those words? Is anybody here now less of a person? Because does anybody here not know those words? Is there anybody here that hasn't used those words or said them silently? Here's why they're important. Because they're strong language. We use strong language. 
sometimes we use it when we know people are watching and they don't want to hear it. But we do it anyway because we just hit our thumb with a hatchet. I said, so if you're going to write, you have to know what the truth is. Mm. And you always have to write from that truth or it won't work because everybody knows what the truth is. Obviously, I'm I've I've heard those words before. I'm I'm not a you know not naive, but I'm some of the shows. And my wife and I were just discussing the new show that just ended Succession had three really great seasons, and we we started doing a count because I think that that they say the f word in that more than any other show I've ever seen. And I watched all the seasons of The Sopranos, and I kind of wonder at some point, and you can speak this as a writer. It's not that we don't need to hear that word, but it's, it feels like it almost loses its effectiveness if you it's, start each it, sentence with that. That's the point. If it's not used judiciously, it's wallpaper. Yeah. It, it had no impact. Right. And that's what happens. Um, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know uh, you allotted some time for me. I do want to ask, we'll switch gears entirely going from succession to one of my very favorite uh, television cartoon animated series that never got its due. And that's Bionic six. Uh, you're the developer Thank and the you. creator on that. Absolutely loved it. And I, I think that that's one of the ones in, in the age now we're in when people in Hollywood keep going back to the well to see what can we remake, what can we bring back like they've tried with Thundercats and everything else. This is a series for me that's A, should be able to be done in live action fairly well with today's technology, and it would make a great animated... Has anyone ever approached you as the developer and creator of this saying, hey, we'd like to try this on the big screen? No, and that brings me to something that I find really interesting and disturbing. I wrote G.I. Joe and Transformers and the Marvel Action Hour under Writers Guild contract, the minimum basic agreement, the only animation writer to get those deals that I know of. Hmm. The reason I was able to get them is, as I said, Hasbro and, and uh, Thunbo did a talent search to find a real writer. And I said to my agent, I'm a real writer, so I have to have a real Writers Guild deal, the minimum basic agreement. And they signed on for that. But they stopped paying me my residuals huh. because the companies had been uh, moved to different companies that were often diff the same company under a different branch. And they chose not to honor the residual payments. So I have unpaid residuals on Transformers and on G.I. Joe going back for years. Wow. And in the process of trying to collect for that because it would make my golden years and I figured out that the gold color comes from being pissed on. <laughs> that it would make my golden years a lot easier because my great, my great uh, pension is now worth less than half. And the cost of living is more than doubled. Sure. So I would love to get recompense and also to get the royalties that are mine for having created Unicron, for example, yeah. which has gone through so many different iterations. But I've never received any royalty payments. Really? And I should. Yeah, really. Oh. I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of a royalty payment for Bewitched, which I love to do because uh, uh, Bill Asher was a friend and so was Liz and Paul Lind was. And I created Uncle Arthur for him. I created the character of Uncle Arthur, the practically joking warlock for Paul. And I got a royalty every time he appeared on an episode, which was many times. Mm -hmm. So. Anyway, you mentioned uh, the Bionic 6. I was proud of that. I, I would have been prouder if the animators had stuck more closely to my original intention. 
But what happened was the animation company was part owner with Universal. And so they uh, took some liberties with what I originally done, which to me kind of watered down the effectiveness. But it was still a good show. I'm proud of it. And if they would want to do that, I would want my royalty. But would they come to me? I sincerely doubt that. I mean, what do I know? When Fantasy Island was reprised, I wrote 54 of them. They didn't come to me. Instead, they did what I felt was a very dark and lame version of the show. And the original pilot for Fantasy Island had been lame and dark. And the dark version did not get the audience. The life-affirming positive version did. Mm -hmm. But they missed that. And as a result, it wasn't a successful return, although they're going to do it again because whatever form it came in on, uh, they don't need to have the eyeballs on the screen. But anyway, I agree with you. I'd love to see that happen. And by the way, almost every show I wrote for is still playing somewhere in the world. Yeah. I still get residual payments. It's incredible. That's got to make you feel good that you've got, like I said, six decades of work when you look at everything you've worked on uh, and going all those. I mean, there's, uh, do I have, a, can I have just a couple more minutes with you? Do you mind? I've just got a couple yes, more things yeah, I want to no, work on. No, no. um, hey, I can't talk about moi. About <laughs> whom can I talk? This is true. Uh, I'm I'm curious the uh, the Marvel Action Hour you did you got to team back up then with Stan Lee your friend to work yeah. on those and the, they had some really great voice cast in that too as I was looking through the Iron Man resume Catherine Moffat was in it who uh, voiced Scarlet Witch you also yes. wrote some episodes of the new WKRP and she played in that as well uh, yep. as uh, Adina Grinbody I think was the name of the character uh, I'm trying to think back. Could be. Again, you know, when I've written over 700 hours of produced, produced, not just I got paid for writing a script they ate. And, you know, but but half were half hours and the other half were hours. It's very difficult to look back and try to remember. I can with some shows where I did more than more than than a few. But uh, I don't remember meeting her on either in, in either circumstance. And that was going to be one of my questions is I assume they sit down with the voice cast. They'd have the table reads. They'd go through everything. Were you in on some of those for Fantastic Four and Iron Man where you sat down with the cast and yeah. read through everything? Yes. yes, I did. I read them often, and sometimes I modeled the voice and actually did the voice. For example, I did the voice of Star oh, on, nice. on uh, Fantastic Four, and I did a few others. And I guess with Stan Lee, you'd already, like I said, you'd, see it, you'd been friends with him and everything. I was kind of like, just you guys fell right into it, worked great next to each other. Was he very hands-on with those series, or he kind of leave yeah. you to your own? No, I was on my own, and it was an unusual gig, because it was produced by Avi Arad, who was a partner in Toy Biz that manufactured the action figures for the X-Men and Fantastic Four and Iron Man. So... He really did something brilliant, which when he and Marvel took control, they made Spider-Man the way Stan made Spider-Man, introducing the first episode with Peter Parker being a teenage kid, short on money, who loses his beloved uncle, who's worried about his aunt May, who doesn't have enough money to take the girl he loves, loves out for a movie or a soda, and that he's bitten by this radioactive spider. And that changes everything, and he has to learn how to use those skills. That was the first issue of Spider-Man. 
Nobody who had done Spider-Man before that paid any attention to it. Zero. What they did is they rented the Spider-Man icon and used him like James Bond, where they used him like a private eye. They didn't use Peter Parker, the kid. So the things that were done with him were really empty and they didn't get an audience because mm. they weren't true to the project. Well, Avi had the sense to do it the right way and that built the Marvel Universe. Do it the way Stan envisioned it for starters and every the other pieces will come together because Stan always thought of things in terms of family and in terms of recognition of relationships and in terms of what is the what are the feet of clay that every superhero must have. Because if they don't, it's like early Superman before Krypton. It was a bore because yeah. he always went. He always won. But anyway, Marvel Action Hour. I got the job because Stan recommended me. I had to produce 13 episodes of Iron Man, 13 episodes of Fantastic Four in less than a year for a very limited budget. And I found out into the process, into the process that those who were doing who were doing Spider-Man as a strip show on the same floor in the same building as we were, were using our money to help their budget. No kidding. I had to catch them on that and fight to get the money to use it. It was not easy. Ugh. And because there was no time, I had to write a lot of the shows because anytime I brought a writer in, it took forever. I had to do them immediately because we had to record immediately because we had to get ready to ship the stuff off with the storyboards and, and the artwork almost immediately. It, it was a nightmare. Hmm. Really one of the most difficult jobs I ever had in my life. But I delivered on time, under budget, and it was playing. And then, uh, anyway, it got ugly after that because of things beyond my control. But I did it. And that in itself was, to me, a victory over time, over money, and over human exhaustion. It was the most difficult thing I ever did. And I feel like like we've talked for over an hour. I feel like we could go on because there's so many. I mean, all the people you know, like just stories from Orson Welles, Lenny Bruce, meeting Marilyn Monroe. You've met Walt Disney, all the stuff that we didn't even get into just old Hollywood-wise. But uh, I'll ask you this last question. If you had to take a, like a Mount Rushmore of what you think is your very, your most proud moments in writing, be it an episode of a television, obviously Transformers the movie, I'm assuming you'd put up there. What would be your four headpieces on your Mount Rushmore of most proud accomplishments? Well, Mount Rushmore isn't big enough because <laughs> I've been proud of just about everything I ever wrote because, as I said, I always gave it my best shot. So I have a number of plays I'm very proud about and delighted in, and one of them right now looks uh, very likely. It's called uh, Love Her More, based on a factual book called The Secrets They Kept. I have a bunch of other plays that uh, have had some excitement connected to them and have not yet gelled. But theater makes television and features look like a sure thing. It's really iffy, but yet I continue to do it. I have a bunch of novels I'm proud of. I have one now that's new that I can't get anybody to read. It's called Fair Game 39. And it is like a North by Northwest murder mystery chase through the New York World's Fair of 1939 on the eve of World War II. Hmm. 
And I have a bunch of others, and I have a bunch of unseen pilot scripts and feature scripts that I think are outstanding. I have a feature script that when I went into the hospital thinking I might never come out, I entered in two film festivals, knowing how they don't matter, just to see if I had it. So it might give me uh, something to come back to if I lived. And it won both film festivals I entered it into. Wow. The, the New York Big Apple and the Los Angeles Neo Noir. And I had producers who made a great deal with me. But unfortunately, they were producers on three preceding Alec Baldwin movies. Ooh. And when he accidentally shot his DP, they ran for cover. So I'm still trying to get that done. But as far as television episodes, The Odd Couple has always given me pleasure. Uh, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Transformers the movie. Uh, I'm thinking hard. Fantasy Island gave me great satisfaction because it was always a challenge to write self-contained short stories that used the magic components of Mr. Rourke and Tattoo. And uh, I delighted in doing, having done uh, All in the Family. I delighted in having done uh, the Andy Griffith show because I always liked the show. In fact, I recently wrote to Ron Howard saying I created the character of Fonzie in uh, Happy Days. And I did by writing the episode Cruisin' that identified the character for which I got no royalty. Hmm. Uh, anyway, because I wanted him to take a look at... Uh, at Iron City Stripper, which was the script that won some competitions. Anyway, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of my book, I Killed Optimus Prime, So Sue Me, which will have a lot of the stories I didn't get to tell here, and also a lot of how I actually wrote the feature film. And uh, if anybody's interested, it's available on Amazon, and if you want me to sign it, you'll have to pay me by PayPal, and I will then sign it and send it to you. But I hope maybe your listeners will be interested in helping a writer stay alive. And At if nine, anything that will help is much appreciated. And anyway, maybe we can do this again because I'm open. Yeah, that, and if you're listening to this after the fact in the podcast form, if you scroll down to the bottom of the page, we'll put a link to Ron's book so you can collect that uh, you can get that book I Killed Optimus Prime um, so much more I wanted to talk to you about like I said I want to talk to you about earlier in your career working on Get Smart with Mel Brooks uh, a lot well, of other stuff but we'll, uh, if, if you're game for it I'd love to have you back on again okay. for round two you mentioned, you mentioned Get Smart let me tell you about Don Adams yes who was Maxwell Smart I wrote for Don as a comic because he was a stand up comic who was hilarious and one of his best lines was, a good fullback and a good halfback should go hand in hand, but not on campus. <laughs> I asked him, where did you get the voice of smart? Because actors in the golden years, they each developed a distinctive voice. That made them stars when they worked live, as most of them had. They worked theater. They worked venues where they had to project and they had to project a distinctive voice so that people would know I got to buy a ticket for seeing William Powell because he speaks this way. Or I got to do it because Clark Gable does this. Or I got to get this because I know I will hear this particular different sound. They all worked on doing that. John Wayne, too. Hey, Pilgrim, take it easy, huh? All of that was affected. They learned to do that. So I asked where Don Adams got the voice of smart. 
And he said, well, I used to do a carbon act, which means he did impressions. And I did William Powell. And I liked his diction. So I just squeaked it up a little bit more and made it Maxwell smart. Isn't that right, Chief? So I think that should be interesting to whoever's hearing that that doesn't know that most actors develop a singular voice. Few movie actors have done that lately. Why you don't see any impressionist doing an impression of Ben Affleck right. or, or uh, Brad Pitt or uh, Meryl Streep because they didn't do that. They no longer do. Anyway, I, re- I really enjoyed this despite the phone call. I'm game for another shot. I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you again for your time. It's absolutely wonderful. Hopefully I'll get a chance to meet you in person sometime. I feel the same way. Thanks again, James. Thank you. Be well. You too. Bye. Hey, kids, are your parents about to buy you a shiny new toy from Amazon? Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? Well, don't be selfish. Share some of that money with us. Before going on Amazon, make sure to type in bit.ly slash geek to me in the web browser. It will look just like Amazon.com, except it'll say referral geek to me radio up top. And then when you check out, a tiny percentage will go to support the show without costing you one cent more. So before your parents get you that gizmo, gadget, or widget, make sure they type in bit.ly slash geek to me in the web browser. Bit.ly slash geek to me. Bit.ly slash geek to me.